Good evening, good evening, everybody. I'm glad you were able to make it out here today. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, today is a good day to have a good day. Amen. Amen. Now, if you'd allow me to take up some of your time here today, I'd like to put a message on your heart. I would like to tell you a little something about faith and who you place your faith in. See, I've heard a plethora of people speaking down on the church, saying things like, we a cult. We worship someone who doesn't exist, amongst many other things. Well, let me tell you a little something. My job isn't to try and convince someone who doesn't want to be convinced. Amen. You can walk a horse to the bucket of water, but you can't force that horse to drink. All I can do is continue to wake up every day and give the word that God has put on my heart. They say we too loud. But let me tell you a little something. When God wakes you up every morning with the power of speech, how could you not take the opportunity to speak in his favor? Amen. God has saved me from weapons, disease, demons, and even worse, myself. I've stood face to face with the devil, demons, and even death, and didn't flinch not once because I know who stands with me. But see, that's something I don't expect others to understand because they haven't been through what I've been through. But what I'm going to do for you here today is break down some of the history and stigmas around the Bible, around church, around God. Now that sounded like a plan. Go ahead and say amen. I don't go to church. I feel like that's the perfect way to start this off. Now, before you say anything or go off judging me, I'm definitely religious and I do follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I just don't go to church to try to prove that anymore. I'll go more into detail about this in story time, but I grew up with a very religious family. I went to a Catholic school when I was a kid. Shout out to Axe Christian Academy in West Oakland. Ah, ah, ah. And I attended Sunday service and Bible study for the majority of my adolescence. After doing all of this for over a decade, I've noticed a lot of things that turned me off of going to the church, but allowed me to gain a closer relationship with God on my own. Now, this is not an episode on why you should or shouldn't go to church. Whether if you're religious or not, I hope you gain a little bit of an understanding of what it's like to be on the other side. The best way I know how to do this is to break down the stigma around the church, history of the church, the difference between worshiping the Bible versus worshiping the church, and how the Bible relates to this modern era. I don't know if this will help encourage you to go to church or discourage you from going to church. Shoot, you might hate me for doing both. All I hope is that you can stop judging people who choose to worship a God and stop judging those who choose not to. With that being said, let's start this off by talking about 
the history of the church. To kick this whole history lesson off, let's go all the way back to the age of the Christian Empire in 312 to 590. The Imperial Age began in 312 when Constantine caught a vision of Christ. Before the 4th century closed, I'm going to be honest with you guys, I am not about to read the whole history of the church right now. It's like 10 p.m. So I'm going to add a little crash course clip. If you don't want to listen to it, then just get past the next 10 minutes. Any understanding of Christianity has to start with Judaism because Jesus was born a Jew and he grew up in the Jewish tradition. He was one of many teachers spreading his ideas in the Roman province of Judea at the time, and he was part of a messianic tradition that helps us understand why he was thought of not only as a teacher, but as something much, much more. Let's go straight to the thought bubble today. The people who would become the Jews were just one of many tribal peoples eking out an existence in that not very fertile crescent world of Mesopotamia after the agricultural revolution. The Hebrews initially worshipped many gods, making sacrifices to them in order to bring good weather and good fortune, but they eventually developed a religion centered around an idea that would become key to the other great Western religions. This was monotheism, the idea that there is only one true god, or at least that if there are other gods, they're total lamoids. The Hebrews developed a second concept that is key to their religion as well, the idea of the covenant, a deal with God. The main man in this, the big mocker, was Abraham. Not to make this too much of a scripture lesson, but it's kind of hard to understand the Jews without understanding Abraham, or Abram as he was known before he had his big conversation with God recorded in Genesis 17. When Abram was 90 years and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I'm gonna make a covenant with you and a bunch of cool things will happen, like you're gonna have kids and your descendants will number the stars and you can have all the land of Canaan forever. It's gonna be awesome. I'm paraphrasing by the way, thought bubble. So God promised that Abram would have kids with his wife, even though the dude was already like 99. But there was a catch. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. Keep it PG-13, thought bubble. Now that is asking a lot from a guy, especially a 99-year-old geezer like Abram living in a time before general anesthesia. But those were the terms of the deal, and in exchange, God had chosen Abraham and his descendants to be a great nation. From this, we get the expression that the Jews are the chosen people. Thanks for keeping it clean, Thought Bubble. So some important things about this God. One, singularity. He, and I'm using the masculine pronoun because that's what Hebrew prayers use, does not want you to put any gods before him. He is also transcendent, having always existed, and he is deeply personal. He chats with prophets, sends locusts, etc. But he doesn't take corporeal form like Greek and Roman gods do. He is also involved in history, like he will destroy cities and bring floods and determine the outcome of wars and possibly football games. Stan, no, football games. Probably most important to us today and certainly most important to Jesus, this God demands moral righteousness and social justice. So this is the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, and despite many ups and downs, the Jewish people have stuck with him for, according to the Hebrew calendar, at least over 5,700 years. And he has stuck by them too, despite the Jews being on occasion something of a disappointment to him, which leads to various miseries and also to a tradition of prophets who speak for God and warn the people to get back on the right path lest there be more miseries. Which brings us back to our friends, the Romans. By the time Jesus was born, the land of the Israelites had been absorbed into the Roman Empire as the province of Judea. At the time of Jesus' birth, Judea was under the control of Herod the Great, best known for building the massive temple in Jerusalem that the Romans would later destroy. And by the time Jesus died, an expanded Judea was under the rule of Herod Antipater, 
also unhelpfully known as Herod. Both Herods ultimately took their orders from the Romans, and they both show up on the list of rulers who were oppressive to the Jews, partly because there's never that much religious freedom in an empire, unless you are, wait for it, the Mongols or the Persians. Also, they were Hellenizers, bringing in Greek theater and architecture and rationalism. And in response to those Hellenistic influences, there were a lot of preachers trying to get the Jews to return to the traditions and the godly ways of the past, including the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Zealots. And one of those preachers, who didn't fit comfortably into any of those four groups, was Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was a preacher who spread his message of peace, love, and above all, justice across Judea during his actually average-length life for his time. He was remarkably charismatic, attracting a small but incredibly loyal group of followers, and he was said to perform miracles, although it's worth noting that miracles weren't terribly uncommon at the time. Jesus's message was particularly resonant to the poor and downtrodden and pretty radical in its anti-authoritarian stance. He said it was easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. He said the meek were blessed, that the last would be first and the first would be last. All of which was kind of threatening to the powers that be, who accordingly had him arrested, tried, and then executed in the normal manner of killing rebels at that time, crucifixion. Also, just to put this question to bed, the Romans crucified Jesus because he was a threat to their authority. Later traditions saying that the Jews killed Jesus, very unfortunate, also very untrue. We're not going to discuss Jesus's divinity because one, this isn't a theology class, and two, flame wars on the internet make me so uncomfortable that I have to turn to camera two. Hi there, camera two. I'm here to remind you that three, fighting over such things, like fighting over whether the proverbial cake is a lie, rarely accomplishes anything. Plus, four, what matters to us is the historical fact that people at the time believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one the Son of God. And they believed that he would return someday to redeem the world, which leads us to two questions about Christianity. First, why did this small group of people believe this? And second, why and how did that belief become so widespread? So why would people believe that Jesus was the Messiah? First, the Jews had a long tradition of believing that a savior would come to them in a time of trouble. And Judea, under the rule of Herod and the Romans, definitely a time of trouble. And many of the prophecies about this savior point to someone whose life looks a lot like Jesus's. For instance, Isaiah 53 says the person will be misunderstood and mistreated, just like Jesus was. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we didn't respect him. And a lot of the prophecies, like Daniel 7:14, for instance, explain that when the Messiah comes, there will be this awesome new everlasting kingdom. And that had to sound pretty good to people who'd had their autonomy taken away from them. So some religious Jews saw Jesus in those prophecies and came to believe either during his life or shortly thereafter that he was the Messiah. Most of them thought the new everlasting kingdom was right around the corner, which is probably why no one bothered to write down much about the life of Jesus for several decades, by which time it was clear that we might have to wait a bit for this brilliant new everlasting kingdom. I should note, by the way, that the idea of a messiah was not unique to the Jews at the time. Even the Romans got in on the action. For instance, the Roman poet Virgil wrote of a boy who shall free the earth from never ceasing fear. He shall receive the life of gods and see heroes with gods commingling. Sound familiar? But Virgil was writing about Emperor Augustus in that poem, not Jesus, which points again to the similarities between the two. Both called sons of God, both sent to free the earth from never ceasing fear, but one ruled the largest empire in the world, and the other believed that empire and the world needed to change dramatically. 
So why did the less wealthy and famous son of God become by far the more influential? Well, here are three possible historical reasons. Reason one, the Romans continued to make things bad for the Jews. In fact, things got much worse for the Jews, especially after they launched a revolt between 66 and 73 CE, which did not go well. By the time the dust had settled, the Romans had destroyed the temple and expelled the Jews from Judea, beginning what we now know as the Jewish diaspora. And without a temple or geographic unity, the Jews had to solidify what it meant to be a Jew and what the basic tenets of the religion were. This forced the followers of Jesus to make a decision. Were they going to continue to be Jews following stricter laws set forth by rabbis, or were they going to be something else? The decision to open up their religion to non-Jews, people who weren't part of the covenant, is the central reason that Christianity could could become a world religion instead of just a sect of Judaism. And it probably didn't hurt that the main proponent of sticking with Judaism was James, Jesus's brother, who was killed by the Romans. Reason number two is related to reason number one, and it's all about a dude named Saul. No, not that Saul. Yes. Saul of Tarsus, thank you. Saul, having received a vision on the road to Damascus, became Paul and began visiting and sending letters to Jesus followers throughout the Mediterranean. And it was Paul who emphatically declared that Jesus followers did not have to be Jews, that they didn't have to be circumcised or keep to Jewish laws or any of that stuff. This opened the floodgates for thousands of people to convert to this new religion. And the other thing to remember about Paul is that he was a Roman citizen, which meant he could travel freely throughout the Roman Empire. This allowed him to make his case to lots of different people and facilitated the geographic spread of Christianity. Oh, it's time for the open letter? All right. An open letter to the fish. But first, let's see what's in the secret compartment today. Oh, Stan, it's my favorite album, Jesus Christ Superstar, finally available in my favorite format, the cassette. Did I color coordinate my shirt to Jesus Christ Superstar? Yes. Dear Ichthys, so check this out. In the first century, when it was still super underground and hipster to be a Christian, you were a secret symbol of Christianity used to kind of hide from the Romans. Ichthys, the Greek word for fish, was an acronym, and it was a super clever way to talk about religion without anyone knowing that you were talking about it. But you'll never guess what happened. Even in places where it's completely fine to talk about Christianity now and to use, you know, regular Christian symbols like the cross, you have had a huge resurgence thanks to the plastic automobile decal industry. I mean, seriously, Ichthys, I haven't seen a comeback like this since Jesus. Best wishes, John Green. And lastly, Christianity was born and flourished in an empire with a common language that allowed for its spread. And crucially, it was also an empire in decline. Like, even by the end of the first century CE, Rome was on its way down. And for the average person, and even for some elites, things weren't as good as they had been. In fact, they were getting worse so fast that you might have thought the end of the world was coming. And Roman religion offered no promise of an afterlife and a bunch of squabbling, whiny gods. Sorry if I offended adherence to Roman religion, but seriously, they squabble. So even though early Christians were persecuted by the Roman Empire and sometimes fed to the lions and other animals, the religion continued to grow, albeit slowly. But then as the Roman decline continued, Emperor Constantine allowed the worship of Jesus and then eventually converted to Christianity himself. And then the religion really took off. I mean, Rome wasn't what it used to be, but everybody still wanted to be like the emperor. And soon enough, there was a new son of God on coins. Thanks for watching. See you next week. Crash Course is produced and directed by Stan Muller. Our script supervisor is Danica Johnson. The show is written by my high school history teacher, Raul Meyer, and myself. And our graphics team is Thought Bubble. As only 62 million of you guessed last week, the phrase... Yeah, that's it. That's the end of that video. All right. I got to be honest. I don't know about any other religion, but Christians who grew up in the church are some of the most judgmental people in the world. Which is weird because the Bible teaches us not to judge thy neighbor. But still, 
Not only do I notice my elders and super religious friends judge people who don't believe in God, but they judge fellow Christians for not being as heavy in the church as they are too. On top of this, there have been many times that I could recall the elders of my church looking down upon the youth and judging us. I remember one time I was at church and the pastor said, 18 is the worst age for your child to be at because it represents the mark of the beast. Think about it. Six plus six plus six equals what? 18. I cannot make this up. He really said that and thought he really opened our third eye or something. Now it's normal for the elders who grew up in church to have such a stern grasp on the youth because it was more than likely that they were treated the same way by their elders when they were young. Now, obviously, this doesn't apply to everyone. I've met religious people who have been very accepting and understanding to the youth and those who don't follow Christ as much as them. But the majority of the church is filled with some judgmental folk, even outside of church. Just speaking from experience here, all of my exes are church girls. And when we dated, they would never fail to question my faith anytime they caught me cussing, reciting a rap lyric, or even when I told them that I'm not celibate. Yes, you can still be a Christian and not be celibate. Although in the Bible, it does indicate that you should wait for marriage to consummate and that a man shouldn't look at a woman with lust. I still do anyway. And this is not me trying to defy teachings of the Bible. These are just things that I'm not going to beat myself up about because at the end of the day, I know I'm human. Now, I don't be out here just having one night stands and I don't objectify women, but I can take back my virginity and I do take the time to compliment a beautiful queen whenever I feel it's necessary. Now, if I were to say this in church, just imagine how much judgment and ridicule I'd get, which leads me to my next topic. As I said before, the church can be pretty extreme depending on which one you go to. I've heard people say stories about their church like, the pastor was cheating with women at the church. The money for the church was being spent on luxuries. Families being kicked out of church because the children had different parents, amongst many other things. Church was designed as a place to worship God. And for many black folks, it was a safe haven and place to build a community around from the Jim Crow era all the way to present day. However, just because they were created for this purpose doesn't mean every church maintains those roots. In every church, you can expect to go over scriptures and lessons in the Bible. But if you take some scriptures from the Bible and apply them to some stories that I mentioned about the church before, you'll see that there is a little disconnect. Allow me to give you some examples. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. But how many times have you heard of a pastor cheating on his wife? Exodus 35 verse 2 states, Six days shall work be, but on the seventh day there shall be to you a holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whosoever does work therein shall be put to death. Whosoever does work therein shall be put to death. Oh, I'm not playing. It really does say that. Yet, how many of you not only work on Sundays, but you have the bulk of your work and projects due on Sunday too? And of course, the biggest one to me, Matthew verse 7 states, do not judge or you too will be judged. I don't even need to relate that one. 
Hey, yo, while I got these scriptures in front of me right now, you know what story was the craziest from the Bible that I thought was just insane when I first heard it? Abraham and his wife received a message from God to leave a city and never look back to see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And of course, Abraham's wife looked back. And guess what happened to her? Yo, she turned into a pillar of salt, my guy. Yo, couldn't give her a warning? or Yo, she just stuck. Hey, I did think it was dope how Chance the Rapper slipped that into his ultralight beam verse on the life of Pablo, though. Anyways, I give you all of these examples because although it is the church's responsibility to uphold the teachings of Christ and give lessons from the Bible, every church is ran by humans who are all flawed in their own ways. So instead of shunning those who fall off their path and make mistakes from time to time, how about we normalize actually accepting people for who they are and offering your hand when they need guidance, not forcing it? Finally, let's see the relevance that the Bible may have in today's era. Now, the Bible obviously has all types of scriptures and lessons, but they were also all written thousands of years ago. In today's age, it's normal to see people working on Sundays, having sex before marriage, and same-sex marriage. The reason why is because times change and people evolve as well as their mindsets. I definitely don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell, Paul. I don't even know how hell works, though. I don't. Because there's only one hell, right? There's only one hell. But how do you regulate who goes to hell? Because there's shit that was okay a long time ago that's not okay now. And there's shit that's okay now that wasn't okay a long time ago. But they all go to the same hell? That never made sense to me. You know what I'm saying? Like that guy from the Orlando ISIS. He's going to go to hell. And he should. But he's also going to meet somebody that was alive at the time when what he did was okay. He's going to go there. And some dude from like 500 BC is going to be like, hey, what you went here for, young blood? I don't know why they talk like that in hell, but I'm just guessing. That's what Young blood, what you in here for? I killed a bunch of gay dudes. You can't do that no more. <laughs> Damn, the world is crazy. Well, what you in here for? I ate a hamburger on a Saturday. See what I'm saying? Not too long ago, a well-known pastor by the name of Michael Todd was giving a sermon. And at some point in that sermon, he was explaining how in the Bible, Jesus spat on a blind man's eyes and it gave him his vision back <laughs> so <laughs> pastor michael todd thought it would be the best illustration to act this out by bringing his brother on stage spitting in his hand and rubbing his saliva on his brother's face don't worry, I'm not going to play the clip for you. It makes me gag every time I hear it. But see, you can't do things like this, especially when the year is early 2022 towards the end of a COVID-19 pandemic. Really, there isn't much I need to explain further when it comes to this. Simply put, times change. 
people evolve and when it comes to taking lessons from the bible take what you can and apply them to your life to help you stay in alignment with god's path but don't do everything literally apply what is necessary all right let me give you all that story time that i've been saving up who y'all talking to man so when I was younger, of course, you know, grew up in a very religious family, grew up going to a Christian school when I was a kid and went to church every Sunday, went to Bible study, the whole the whole nine. So as I got older, I was one of those kids who was like, oh, if you don't follow my God, then you're following the wrong one. I got to grab your hand and bring you on the right path and all these different things. I was like that from like the time I was a kid all the way to like 15, I would say. So around 15 is when I would say I kind of laid back on that because I started to see other people had their own teachings. They had their own lives. They had their own religions. They had their own truths. And who was I to be like, oh, my truth is better than yours because my God, I believe, is the right one. And he his story is correct and how men started and this, that and the other and all these different things. As I, like I said, as I got older, I kind of just was more accepting and understanding of others. And I stopped judging others. That was the most important is I stopped judging people who weren't following God the same way that I was. And I stopped judging people who didn't even believe in, in God. So once I was able to do that, I was able to open my eyes around. I was able to open my eyes around me. I was able to open my eyes to things that were happening around me. For example, I started to notice how judgmental other people in my church were towards me and the other youth and towards people who made mistakes in church. My church that I was going to, they were very, I don't want to disrespect them, but they were very, very sketchy and judgmental. Our pastor would ask us to give tithes twice a day. And that was that ring the bell in my head because it was like you know why we got to give ties twice a day you know it's like come on so after doing this for about i think three or four months we ended up changing locations because we couldn't afford our original one so it went from being in our home church to now we're giving now we're going to church at a hotel and then another hotel and then another hotel because apparently the I don't know. It may have something to do with the financials, whatever it may have been. But the pastor was messing up somewhere. That's all I got to say. So after noticing this for a while, I guess me and my mom just were like, yeah, we're not going back to that church. So after that is when I kind of started to find God within my own self. And I started to find his teachings within my life. You know, I was seeing what moves he was making in my life to help me go down the right path, how he was able to help me navigate through narrow roads, how he was able to just help me stay on track, stay on track and separate me from certain friends, separate me from certain people who serve no longer, who no longer served a purpose in my life. After a while of not going to church, no longer being celibate and cussing like a sailor, obviously a lot of people who go to church and people who are very heavy in church looked at me like uh, like I was a heathen like oh how do you claim to be Christ-like and you're doing all these different things and I shunned myself about this for about oh, like 
a few years and I would just feel terrible about myself. But it got to the point to where I had to realize that I'm human, just like everyone else. And I have my own growth process. I have my own stepping stones and people have their own. And I'm not the right. I'm not going to judge them for having their own separate process. And they shouldn't judge me for having my own separate process. At the end of the day, we're all growing. And just because your process is faster or slower than mine doesn't mean that I need to compare. Final word for today is I'm not trying to convert atheists into believers. I'm just trying to say that the way that school needs teachers, the way that Kathy Lee needed Regis, that's the way that I need Jesus. In life, we run into people of all different walks of life and different religions. Instead of judging people who don't share your same beliefs or shaming others because they sin differently than you do, how about you accept the fact that we're not all the same and no one is perfect? We're all just trying to figure this thing called life out, just like you.